Hello and welcome to Life and Inside Job, the podcast where we centre our internal experiences as sources of comfort, nourishment and creativity. My name is Kate. I'm the author of Second Spring, The Self-Care Guide to Menopause. And I'm a writer, a mentor, a speaker, an artist and facilitator. And the other thing that I love to do is have soulful, meandering conversations with people about how their inner lives nourish them. And this is what Life and Inside Job is all about. If you are in perimenopause, menopause, or your second spring or summer, you might enjoy the wealth of yoga nidras, at-a-glance graphics of the seasons, meditations and workshops, all available free and easy to access on my website. Just go to the homepage and click the button that says Start Here, and the website is katecodrington.co.uk. That's with one D, by the way. (laughs) It's my delight to hold space for you to deepen into your body wisdom and your soul's longing so that you can refine trust in your cyclical nature and use the cues from your inner seasons to navigate the world with presence and delight into the second cycle of your life. And this can be with one-to-one sessions, with a menopause doula service, or I can make it really easy for you to organise a retreat day, a circle, or workshop, or talk for your community. Just grab a 20-minute session if this is interesting for you and we can figure out what might work over a cup of tea. My guest today in this episode is Catherine Morgan. She's a multi-award winning qualified financial planner and award winning certified financial coach. She's on a mission to reduce financial anxiety and to increase financial empowerment and resilience for one million women around the world. She was featured as one of the top 32 female entrepreneurs to look out for in Business Leader. She's host of the top 1% global codpast. (laughs) This is a codpast, clearly. But Catherine has a podcast, because she's much more sensible than me. And it's called In Her Financial Shoes. There's a link to that later. And she's the founder of The Money Panel. I asked you what you wanted to know about money and Catherine answers your questions in this conversation on pensions in your 50s, how to get started with investments, women develop wealth, the relationship between self-esteem and earnings, how and why to pay yourself a salary and also how to navigate a global crisis as a self-employed person. I learned so much from Catherine and she is super generous in sharing her knowledge and tips. Whether or not you're self-employed, this podcast will probably improve your wealth. I just thought of this question, which is kind of, I would like to frame the whole of our conversation. Why is money so charged? Hmm. Such a great question. Um, It's the meaning and the perception that we give to money that makes money so charged. So if you think about the word money, for a lot of people, hearing that word immediately will invoke a whole range of emotions on the spectrum, all the way from joy 
and gratitude and opportunity and independence and choice all the way down to fear, greed, shame, guilt, regret, anger, you know, the whole spectrum. And it's interesting, isn't it, that people say that money is the taboo subject. I don't actually think it is money that's the taboo subject. It's the whole meaning and purpose that we attach to money that becomes the taboo subject. And very often for women, particularly, we attach a lot of our sense of self directly to money. You know, we mm. give away a lot of our power to money, which is really interesting when you think that money in itself is just a physical coin or a piece of paper. It has no emotional charge attached to it physically, but yet we give it that emotional charge by the meaning and the purpose that we attach to it. And this leads beautifully into uh, one of the questions that I got from my community. People wanted to know how self-esteem relates to earning potential. You know, there's this thing where, well, if only I believed in myself more, then I could generate the generate the business and all that kind of thing. So how can you talk a bit, please, about the relationship between self-worth and financial worth and how that that dance? I mean, it's like it's like a tango, isn't it? <laughs> I love that. I love the fact that you've used that word dance because it, it really is a gentle dance. It's this gentle dance between we all want to have enough. You know, we all this 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 phrase enoughness. We all want to have enough money that we're never going to run out of it. So that when we're living in our later years and we go into the the financial challenges of long term care planning, uh, looking after aged parents. Uh, and then the, the period before that of looking after teenage children, university costs and, you know, the whole life spectrum. What often what happens is that we have we have to try and balance this gentle dance between living in the moment, living in today and planning for the future. And what I find really interesting is that we do attach so much of our sense of self into this conversation around money. So if only I had uh three more qualifications or if i just buy these extra courses or these memberships then then i'll be able to charge my worth or then i'll be able to increase my fees or then i'll be able to ask for a pay rise at work um and it is a lot to do with our ability to feel safe to ask for money um and then it's our ability to be able to hold on to money so this is quite interesting and something that perhaps your listeners haven't thought about before is that often it, there's one of two things that we struggle with as women. The first one is um, charging our worth. So asking for money. And it's not just money. Like you can play a bit of an experiment with yourself this week, listening to this podcast, that if somebody gives you a compliment this week, just pause for a moment and and see how does it feel for someone to say to you, ah, oh, like your your jumper is gorgeous. Where did you get that from? And you might have this resistance to um, like almost batting the compliment back, like, oh, this old thing, like I've had it years. It's been in the back of my wardrobe. 
you know, oh, oh, your hair looks gorgeous right now. I like, love the color of it. And you're like, oh, yeah, like, you know, it took me two minutes this morning. Like, you know, we, we bat away these compliments because of our inability to receive and our inability to receive love and acceptance and compliments. And it's the same with money. If we have an issue with receiving love, we also have an issue with receiving money. And so often when people say to you, well, just charge your worth, that doesn't really actually, (laughs) it's not helpful because if your self-worth isn't very high because there's some lack of self-confidence, then you're never going to charge your worth. It's actually about detaching your sense of self away from the money because the two are not interlinked. It's only consumerism, society, the shoulding that that is upon us as expectations that we then feel like, oh, I should raise my prices or I should be earning more or I should be, you know, should be, should be, should be. Mm -hmm. So I I think a lot of the challenges for us in in consumerism is that there's so much shoulding that we don't actually really know what should I be charging or how much should I be earning or what should I be investing or how much should I be saving or should I be doing this? And no one teaches us this stuff because we didn't get financial education at school. And so actually all of our beliefs and behaviors around money specifically have been born from parents or caregivers growing up. And that in like directly then infers how we feel about receiving receiving more receiving more love more connection um more money and then of course you've got the the kind of second part to this which is the holding on to and for a lot of women that that in our community specifically (coughs) excuse me they have no problems in making money but then it's like they make money and they spend money they make the money and they spend the money so they might make £10,000 a month, they spend £10,000 a month, they make £10,000 a month, they spend £10,000 a month. And again, it's all linked to this ability to be able to hold on to money because of what that represents. And I'll give you a really like a really juicy example of one of the ladies in our community just this week, actually, she was telling us a story about how her mum would look after the children at home. That was her role. And that's what she remembered growing up was that her mum didn't work, she would look after the children and her father would go out and he would hustle, like seriously hustle. He would go out, he'd have three jobs, come home at 10 o'clock at night, be out at 5am the following morning, like a real hustler. And so her belief and perception was, it's okay for men to bring money into the household, but that you have to work hard, almost to the point of burnout to receive money. And then as soon as the the family received the money, it was all spent. And hence why he had three jobs, right? Because trying to keep up with the cost of living, that's just what they had to do. And so the belief for her was, well, first of all, it has to be men bringing money in. And the second, so women have to be the caregivers. They have to look after everybody else's needs before their own. And that that kind of created this um, enabler, what we call the enabler money story type, where they um, are, are in these beliefs and patterns that they have to look after everybody else's needs first. And then whatever energy is left or whatever money is left over can go to their own needs. Mm. And that enabler, that overgiving narrative is very, very common for um, a lot of people. 
So um, going back to this story, that this perception was it was okay for men to bring money in, but then as soon as it was received, it, it just went. So it came and it went, it came and it went. Um, and so just understanding that story and that experience for her was really interesting because it was like, actually, is it really true that you have to work hard to make money? Is it really hard that only men can bring money into the household? And also, is it really true that once you receive money, it has to go straight away? So this inability to hold on to money. Um, and so going back to what you, what you were saying earlier, Kate, about this gentle dance, those examples there is really like this feminine, masculine energy. It's the kind of the flow, the trusting, the intuition that money's going to come and trusting in that. Um, things being very easy and, you know, in flow, whereas the masculine energy is much more around, you know, the hustle, the working hard, the implementation, the action taking, the getting things done. And again, I think for a lot of women, uh, we tend to operate more in the masculine because that's what we're told to do. Just work harder, go and get a better job, work longer hours, work harder. And so we 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 kind of create ourselves these limitations in society around expectations of what is and isn't right and okay to do when it comes to making decisions around money. Mm. Oh my goodness. I mean, there's so much in there. It's like cracking open a coconut and there's all this juice in there. Oh. I, I would like to recommend that people go and if people who want to unpick their own money stories, um, get a copy of your book. Whose name? Whose title? Embarrassingly, I have has just gone out of my head. Tell, tell, us, <laughs> tell us what it's called, Catherine. It's not about the money. Um, um, yeah, this title. It was a really interesting experience. Actually, I released this book on my fortieth birthday last year, and I remember when I finished the book, I felt like like it's not finished. Like I, I've almost felt like I could rewrite the book seven times over. Like there was just so much that I wanted to put into this book, but really the what the book is in its current format is a, a a lovely resource for women to be able to look at both sides it's the emotional relationship with money and then the practical side of of money management um and i know we may tip into sort of the investing conversations today yeah, um yeah. but for me it all starts with looking at your relationship with money and the habits and the beliefs and the behaviors and then you layer on the practical knowledge and then it sticks. And that's when the magic happens. Brilliant. Okay. I'm going to get on with these questions that people wanted to know about. So what do you do if you're in your fifties and you have no pension and no resources? Mm -hmm. So two different things there, um, having no pension and no resources um, in that situation, which let's face it, there are a lot of women who don't have pensions, a lot of women who don't have pensions. Why? Because of uh, the motherhood penalty, the gender pay gap. There's lots of reasons why we have had in the past particularly been very codependent on our partners to be the provider of the investment buckets, as I like to kind of call them in, in later life. Right. And that was that's that was very common for a generation ago. I think more more and more now it's becoming you know a, a conversation that we're talking more about about the importance of starting young the importance of having your own financial stability but I think if you're in your 50s already and you have no financial resources that's a very different scenario to someone who has financial resources so 
when it comes to investing, um, whether it's in pensions or ISAs, it doesn't really matter. It's all it, it, pen, a pension is just a nice little sweetie wrapper that is put around a boiled sweet. And that boiled sweet represents a cluster of money. So whether it's an ISA wrapper or a pension wrapper, it doesn't really matter. Um, but for me, everybody can get started with, with a very small amount. So one of the things I always talk to my community about is, first of all, finding out what do you have access to or what have you had access to in the past? And there are there is something ridiculous like, it's something like 30 billion pounds worth of money is lost in pensions because people have moved house over the years and they've had pensions that they kind of forgotten about that they had in their 20s or their 30s or their 40s. And, and so they feel like they have nothing. And then you ask them the question, did you ever contribute to a final salary scheme back in the 80s, 90s or earlier than that? Or, you know, did you get a pension share? from a previous partner or something like that. And they're like, oh, actually, yeah, I might have done. And there's a terrific website called uh, on the government website where you can actually go back and trace pensions. It's called the Pension Tracing Service. Um, and people find like pots of money all over the place from pensions that they had forgotten about because like it's the last thing you think about when you move house, isn't it? Oh, I must remember to update my pension provider. <laughs> <laughs> with my new address. So uh, like the reason I mention this is when you say about no financial resources, like I'm, I'm what I don't want to do is, is talk specifically about people who have financial instability. If you're in a place of financial instability, then that's conversations to be had with, you know, the likes of step change and charities and organizations that can support you through those very, very difficult times. And you know, particularly right now with the global economic crisis, there will be people in that situation for sure. But I also want to like really empower women to think about that there might be some things that you have already got that you've forgotten about. And also the, one of the biggest things I see for a lot of women and um, when when women are going through different relationship changes, so divorce is a really common one where Typically, um, the woman will say to, and I'm, you know, I'm being very gender specific here, just in terms of um, divorce cases. But for women and men specifically, um, men will often sort of say, "Oh well, ignore my pension; it's not worth anything." Or, or the the wife will say, "Oh well, you just keep your pension; it's not worth anything." And they don't realise that actually there is a significant value in partners' pensions but they kind of just get pushed to one side. Mm. And I remember helping a client a few years ago and she actually challenged the lawyers around the divorce settlement and went back and said, actually, can I have a look at the pension? And she managed to get like 90,000 pounds. And it was just one email to the lawyer to ask a question about his pension. Um, you know, because she'd given up work to look after the children during that period. So quite rightly, she was entitled to some of that benefit. So um, I feel like this conversation around like pensions for women specifically is that we do need to have a look at what we already have. We do need to have a look at um, is there any conversation to have from relationship breakups if that were to happen. But also we know that the there is a big motherhood penalty, like 
they, they, they've done a lot of research around this, that when they've compared a family with two children and a family uh, who don't have children at all, that the motherhood penalty is 20%. So we women who have children, on average two, will be 20% less off financially because of, of having children. And we know that Great Britain has like the third most expensive childcare system in the world. So if you combine those two things together, we know that in the earlier years, you know, if you're in your 50s now, the likelihood is you weren't contributing into pensions because you couldn't because of the childcare costs and, and everything else. So one of the things that a lot of women are not aware of is that if you do have children that are under the age of 12, is to make sure that you go and register for your child tax benefits, even if you don't qualify so there is a threshold, like if your partner earns more than, I think it's 50, 55,000, 60,000, something around that figure, that you can't claim it because you're because you're too rich, like you're too wealthy. Um, but you can still claim child tax benefit, but you don't receive the money, but you receive the added year's contribution into the state pension. And where we know we have to work 35 years now to get the full state pension. And so if we have this period of time where we weren't working because we were looking after the children, we can still claim the national insurance stamp, so to speak. Oh, my God. You can period. see this. But people people listening can't see my, my mouth is actually hanging open because I didn't know that. No. Like, oh, and no my one God. talks about this. Yeah. Oh, my God. And, and you can, like, one of the first things to do is to actually go and check out what does your state pension look like currently. So you can go onto the gov.uk website and just, um, if you just Google uh, state's pension um, forecast and you fill out a form online you just need to have your national insurance number and then it will tell you how many years worth of national insurance contributions you have paid and how many years you've got left now it might be that you're now back at work and you're going to make up that full 35 year contribution but if you haven't one of the reasons might be is that you've not claimed for something because you've thought, oh, well, it doesn't apply to me because my partner's earning more than this uh, this threshold. And so there's no point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's one of the biggest, biggest gaps in knowledge that we are just not told. Yeah, and no, I'm, I'm counting on my easy. fingers. <laughs> oh, my God. OK, yeah, okay, that's, that's my homework for today. <laughs> so, so going back to your question. Yeah. Sorry, just going back to that question, Kate, the what happens if I'm in my 50s and I have no pension? So the first thing is to, you know, is this just a narrative that you're telling yourself? Because actually you may have some old pensions from previous years. Um, and it's never too late. Like just because you're in your 50s does not mean that you cannot get started. You could be contributing into your pension through your 50s and your 60s and your 70s if you wanted to. There's no age limit there's a tax benefit limit at 75. So once you hit 75, if you're still contributing to a pension, which is highly unlikely at that point, but if you were, you wouldn't get the tax benefits that you would get on a contribution, your tax relief uh, benefits. But you can contribute in your 50s for 20 years. You could do, you know, £5 a week, £20 a month into a pension. And even just that amount of money don't forget that you get the tax credit on top. They call it tax relief, which is a bit weird because it's not a relief. It's not taken away. It's actually given to you. It's a tax credit. So if you're sticking in £20 a month, the government are going to put £5 a month on top of that. It's free money. So why wouldn't you get started when you're 50? The so, reason that people say don't get started 
is because they feel like they've left it too late. And that's a mindset. Yeah. And that mm. so it sounds like you're saying that the starting in your 50s with a small amount, mm. whatever you can afford, it's better to put it into a pension plan. Well, the question, is it better to put it in a pension plan, depends on your situation. So um, you can go and speak to a financial advisor and get financial advice. Um, it depends on your situation. For most people, you, you've got a couple of choices. You can put it into a pension. You could put it into a pension, uh, sorry, an ISA wrapper instead of a pension. Or you could just put it into the stock market or you could put it into your bank account. It doesn't really matter. But pensions is in, is an investment vehicle. And there's a big difference between saving money and investing money. So that's the first question to ask yourself is, is this money for short term, i.e. money that needs to go in the bank, in a savings account, get as much interest as you possibly can on that money, because you're going to be spending it in the next five years. If it's money that's going to go beyond that time frame, then generally speaking, investing is the better route to go because um, you've got time to ride out, you know, the volatility of the ups and downs in the investment markets. Um, and again, as soon as I start talking about investment markets and risk, a lot of women are like, I don't know anything about that. It's too risky. Um, I can't afford to lose any of my money because we're not educated around uh, actually what does really good investment principles look like. Um, and people then start to think about things like cryptocurrency and, you know, all these things that we see on social media, they are not investing strategies. They are, you know, for people that are very wealthy, can be prepared to lose money potentially, or for people that have already got their financial foundations covered with, with what, you know, their core satellite portfolios already. And then they're looking to go over and above those with some sexier things. But when it comes to general investing, you can you can put it into a pension. Um, you can put it into an ISA. You could just put it into a normal investment account. The main differences between those are the tax differences and the accessibility. So if you put it in a pension, you can't access access that money until you're 55. If you put it in an ISA, you can access it tomorrow. Like so that it, it depends on how much access do you need and what's your tax position. Um, and those are two of the things which you can, you know, you can Google those things, pensions versus ISAs. We've done millions of podcast episodes, written millions of blogs around this subject. Pensions versus ISAs, the money panel. You'll come up with a whole range of different blogs and podcasts there that will help you to go into that in a little bit more detail. Um, but the, the main difference is, you know, when do you want to have access to that money? If it's short term, stick it in the savings account, a high interest savings account, cash ices, those kind of things. If it's a longer term investment strategy, five years or longer, then you you definitely want to be considering uh, investment portfolios. So helpful. Thank you so much. And how about for somebody who has started investing, mm -hmm. but wants to diversify? What, what, how... Can you talk a bit about a, having a wider spread of investments? Yeah, I love the principle of what we call the core and satellite approach. So if you imagine you had a blank piece of paper in front of you and you drew a circle in the middle of that piece of paper and inside that circle is your core investment approach. Um, and then around that big circle in the middle, you've got lots of little circles, almost like planets in the solar system. Um, and those are like the satellites. 
And those are what I would call like your Brad Pitt investment portfolios. It's the sexy stuff, you know, it's the the things that got the bells and whistles on. It's the things that might be in some higher risk areas. You know, it might be um, individual company shares, for example, they would be uh, satellites because they're riskier. You know, if you've got a thousand shares in Apple and Apple share price falls through the, you know, falls through the, the floor, then the whole of your investment portfolio is going to go down in value. Whereas if you've got a core investment approach, the big one in the middle, this is where typically most investors will invest into a a fund. And all a fund is, is if you imagine like a, a fruit and veg market, <laughs> do you remember that? We used, to go, we used to go to the fruit and veg market all the time when we were kids. And in the market, you'd have like a banana stall, you'd have an someone selling apples, you know, someone selling fudge, you know, somebody selling the, the meat. And you'd have all these different market traders and they'd all be selling different things. Now, if I was wanting to place a bet on uh, whether I think the cost of meat is going to rise or bananas or ice creams or umbrellas, you know, I would probably buy some of everything so that when the sun comes out and everyone shoots to go and buy the ice creams and I'm invested in ice cream, my money's going to go up. But then if the heavens open and it starts raining, which would probably happen on the same day in Britain, let's face it, <laughs> I've got an umbrella and everyone's going to run to go and buy umbrellas. So if you think about that market, you want to be buying a little bit of everything. That's all a fund does is it invests your money in lots and lots of different, what they call asset classes, lots of different companies so that you've got a slice of the profits that those companies are going to be making over time. And some of them will go up, some of them will go down, but it doesn't matter because if you've got a portfolio of a thousand of them, then some of them will go up, some of them will go down. And that's when you start to get this kind of little bumpy road or little on the graphs. If you look at the investment graphs, you see some ups and some downs. You know, you'll be investing in equities of companies. And you can, um, there are lots of funds that do um, um, green green schemes as well and eco-friendly mm. funding too. Yeah, ESG investments. So um, this is what I love about um, this conversation as well, is that there's there's so much research as well that shows that when women have wealth, we actually make better returns and we invest more ethically in alignment with our values. So there are a lot of women who love investing in ESG portfolios. ESG are um, ethical, sustainable investments. So they're there's there's a whole different like range of ESG investments. But for example, if you were invested in the UK stock market, the FTSE 100, it, that's the top 100 companies that are on the UK stock market. Now, within that top 100 companies, you might have companies in there that are investing in uh, tobacco or pornography or arms manufacturing. And what ethical investments do is they weed out any companies that are potentially what they call sin stocks. So they're like in, in areas that potentially are considered to be unethical or, um, you know, it depends on your, on your level of, of um, ethicalness, if you like. Um, <laughs> so they can weed out some of these sin stocks or they go into what they, they flip it the other way and they focus on investing more in companies that do or create positive impact in the world. So those would be the likes of the green energy companies, um, you know, companies that are doing good in the world. 
And that's the great thing about investing as well, isn't it? Is that you can know that you're growing your personal wealth at the same time as doing good in the world for the planet. And I think that's a lovely way to combine making money seem good because so many of us have this belief that rich people are greedy. We shouldn't ask for more. You know, we should just be grateful for what we have. And actually, if you combine investing to grow your personal wealth, you can also align that really beautifully into your own ethical views as well. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the returns are less either. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and going back to your original question about like the, the if I'm already investing, if you've got your core investment approach and, in your, and perhaps you're investing regularly into that investment portfolio, if you're a business owner, perhaps you might be taking a, a, a payment each year out of your profit and putting it into your company pension um, and you've still got money available then there's so much fun that you can have with investing. You could go and invest in other companies, seeding, you know, seed enterprise companies or, um, you know, new companies that are up and coming. You could go and invest in um, non-for-profit organizations. You could go and invest in like anything you wanted. There's so much opportunity um, you could invest that money into, um, you know, setting up your own foundation or charity, um, you could you could go and invest it into things like cryptocurrency and things where, you know, if you lose it all, doesn't really matter because you've got your core portfolio. So but but I think for the majority of women and the majority of people, they don't necessarily have the core approach and they go straight into some of the sexier things and then they have a really bad experience and then they just say investing's not for me. Mm. Right, I'm going to ground all this. <laughs> I'm going right back down to earth, to <laughs> currency, to salaries. Yeah, not so sexy, is it? But hey, a lot of people listening to this will be self-employed. How? What is the best way to pay yourself as a self-employed person? Do you pick a regular amount of money and transfer? I mean, assuming that people have a business account and a personal account. How do we do that? Yeah, great question. I am a massive lover of the profit first methodology. Um, it's a terrific book by Mike Michalowicz um, called Profit First. And the principles of profit first is that you pay yourself first. So what does that look like? That is essentially flipping the traditional accounting model on its head. So a lot of um, business owners who have accountants the accountants will say, okay, so what are your sales minus off all your expenses and whatever you've got left, you can pay yourself, um, which makes sense, completely makes sense. However, it puts your profit last. And what the profit first methodology does is it flips that formula onto its head. And it says, actually, what do you want to pay yourself first? And then whatever's left is what you have to manage your expenses on and then you can work out how much you need to make in your business. So I love the profit first methodology. It also um, really kind of gets us thinking about the habits of money management in our businesses. So having a separate business account, for example, is a must. I personally would always suggest to pay yourself a fixed amount of money from your business to your personal account for several reasons. One is it creates a good habit. 
Um, and it's like a salary. You know, a lot of people that have their own businesses used to be employed. And so the mindset, like the mindset of receiving a fixed pay in your account every month, when you go self-employed, it can be a real challenge to have a different mindset around you're actually the one responsible now for creating that pay for yourself, uh, which is often why people go self-employed in the first place. Um, but they don't put their profit first. And so if you start off by paying yourself a fixed amount, let's say it's £500 a month or £1,000 a month, you're setting that that expectation that this is the amount of money that is necessary for me to have in my personal wealth in order for it to make sense for me to run this business. And then you can layer it up. So when we, when we I what I teach in my community is this layered methodology. So once you've got that fixed amount of money that you're paying yourself, you then want to have these like bonus periods where you're taking extra money out of the business. Um, and also you want to be growing your business so that you're considering your monthly recurring revenue uh, or MRR and cash flow, like cash injections into your business. So if you're a coach, for example, you might have clients that are on a retainer that you're working with them for like three or four months, or you're a therapist, you might have clients working with you for a period of time. And you might then have cash injections where you're doing a launch or you've got a group program or you're being paid to speak at an event or you've got a book and it's bringing in some royalties that there's it's actually looking at ways where you can layer in money coming in in cash injections and money coming in on a monthly recurring basis and it's the monthly recurring basis money that coming in that will provide you with that stability almost like you had when you were employed receiving a monthly salary um, but I don't think it's talked about enough, particularly in the online space, because everyone just talks about make 100K, hit hit six figures, make seven figures. Like it just means this magical formula somewhere. And, and it's it's really not. It's just about slowly and steadily growing different types of income streams so that then if you lose a client or your course launch doesn't go as well as you wanted it to, that you've you've still got other revenue streams coming in. Um, but ultimately you've got to pay yourself first. So start off that habit as early as and you that's, can. That, that is self-worth right there, isn't it? Like talking about putting yourself first, mm. talking about receiving. Can I receive that? Can I manage my ideas about my potential and my capacity to earn and to receive? You know, mm. it's, yeah. Yeah, and it might it's, be hard. It's. It, I think it. Well, it's something that I don't do, and I have a lot of charge around. But I'm really. It's really opening my eyes to look at. Well, what is going on there? Because that that is that is a whole jewel box of um, information in there about my the way I think about money. And I'm so glad that you said that, Kate, because um, like in our Wealthy Women's School, which is our signature program, we go into the practical parts of money management, but we don't do it first. The first thing that we actually do is understand what is the money story? What are the beliefs that we carry around money? And we use um, EFT, which is emotional freedom technique and something called matrix reimprinting, where we actually get the, the, the charge away from the body. Because if if you're listening to this and thinking, oh, 
well, I need to pay myself first. But even just that thought makes me feel anxious or guilty or there's some shame there. Well, I'm, I don't deserve to pay myself first. I'm, I'm not even earning enough in my business right now. You know, we, we tell ourselves these things and we carry it in the body. And so we use emotional freedom technique, which essentially is like acupuncture um, on the body, but it's without the needles. So you're, you're tapping on different parts of the body to release the emotional charge that we carry around those money beliefs to enable us to be open to receive more, to enable us to be able to hold on to more of that wealth. Um, and that's the key. It's not just the practical steps. It's actually, well, let's release this emotional charge, step one. Then we layer on the practical knowledge and then it will stick because we've got rid of the negative charge. It's no longer there. We've re-imprinted it with a new positive belief and we feel it in the body. When you feel it in the body, everything changes because you behave differently. <laughs> so I, I, I'm really glad that you said that because it's not just a simple thing of just pay yourself more. It, you've got to get behind the energetics that are going to support you to be able to do that. Okay, final question. We're coming in, there's a lot of fear around at the moment because of the state of the state of the market, the state of the nation and everything that's going on and the rising cost of living. Um, how as self-employed and freelance people, how can we manage our fears at this time? Stop watching the, the news. <laughs> <laughs> we don't watch the news in our house. Like, I know it sounds like a really silly thing to say because, you know, it, it, it's surrounded, you know, we're surrounded by it all day long. But if you're surrounded by the constant stream of lack, not enoughness, significant change. I mean, goodness, the week that we're recording this, we've just had a, a change in prime minister. Um, again. Again. Like, <laughs> you know, and if you think about it, if we're watching that, our energy is going to take that in, you know, this constant change. It's um, it's unsettled, it's unnerving, and it's going to have an impact on how we feel about our businesses. But if you look at the statistics and the actual logical side of right now, in five, 10 years time, we come through this, which we will because it's just cyclical. Yeah, we can look back at the 1980s. It was cyclical. Markets crashed, markets came back up again. It will It will happen. Um, then there are going to be way more entrepreneurs than we have ever had before. And that is exciting. That's an opportunity. It's, it's an opportunity for people to think about, even though we have global crisis going on around us, that does not mean that we can't make money in our businesses. It might mean you have to make some pivots. You might need to change your marketing strategies you might need to do some more research with your clients and meet them where they're at right now. But it doesn't mean that you can't make more money because the economy is not making money. My, and, my, feel, my feeling is that if because, there's, because there is this massive crisis, it's a call for us to show up. Like now you have to show up and really do what you're called to do. It's like, ding, 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 come on, Kate. Get yeah. your ass out of bed. <laughs> But the challenge with that is that word showing up for a lot of people is like, oh, but I don't like, I don't want to get visible. I don't want to be seen. You know, we have this whole imposter syndrome that sits around that. 
But if you think about it, let me give you an example. One of my clients, uh, she runs a business that has been very heavily hit by uh, global economic um, changes. And so she's just pivoted her model. She's gone from one-to-one clients to a membership model. Um, She's earning the same amount of money, if not probably what she will be earning more, but she's meeting people where they're at. So she's lowered the barrier to to entry with her proposition because that's the right thing for her clients. Um, And she's still making money and she'll probably make way more money with that model than she would on the previous model and in less time. But that is a conscious change that she's had to make because of what's going on in her community. And it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody that you're serving is going to be affected. There are lots of people who are very positively being affected by the changes at the moment. Um, So I think it's uh, when I said turn off the news, you know, it's a bit tongue in cheek, but if we're constantly surrounded by these messages of fear and scarcity and not enoughness, it's going to have an impact on your energy. So one of the other things you can do if you do want to carry on watching the news is um, reset your energy, reset your energy three times a day. So first in the morning, afternoon, and then again in the evening. And you can do this with meditation. You can do this with energy work. You can do this with just simple heart breathing and just give yourself the space to take a few minutes. It doesn't have to be like an hour's meditation, but a few minutes of stillness, a few minutes to tap into the nervous system to re-regulate, you know, get the parasympathetic nervous system back online, get it feeling really positive and neutral and calm so that then you can carry on with the rest of your day. So that energy reset, I love to do it first thing in the morning, not, not first thing because I have two young children, but, you know, in the morning at some point before I start work, once again at lunchtime and then once again in the evening. Wow, just listening to this again, there is so much information in there. This was not a meandering conversation, was it? It was really precise. So grateful to Catherine for this. And her book, which is called, I couldn't remember the title, but it's a very good title. It's called It's Not About the Money. It's available for free just for the cost of the postage at www.itsnotaboutthemoney.com. And that will help you unpick your own stories about money. And you can find her excellent masterclasses and programs at katherinemorgan.com. My book, Second Spring, The Self-Care Guide to Menopause, is available from your favourite bookshop. It's published by HarperCollins. And if you like the sound of using the seasons as a guide to life, even and especially if you don't have a menstrual cycle, You might enjoy the menopause doula service that I offer one-to-one and facilitation for groups if you fancy a circle or a workshop or a retreat day for you and your friends. Just check out my website where you'll find out a treasure trove of free stuff, yoga nidras, the visual guides to the seasons, meditations and workshops. It would be wonderful if you felt able to share this podcast with a friend who could benefit from it, either on social media or in real life. And if you've not listened to Life and Inside Job before, there are episodes on perimenopause, on self-care, on creativity, on autism, 
ADHD, writing, on yoga, on aging, on presence, on style, all the good stuff is there. And if you could rate it and leave a review, then that would just be brilliant too. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in your ears very soon. <laughs>